I'm Ruxandra Guiri, host of The Catch, a podcast from Foreign Policy and the Walton Family Foundation about the seafood we eat and the impact it can have on our world. This season, we'll hear how Norway is handling cod's changing migration patterns and what it says about fisheries in other parts of the world. Season three of The Catch is out now. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. In a few days, America will celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This year, the national holiday lands on his actual birthday, January 15th. Had he lived, he would have been 95 years old. Instead, King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee in 1968. But his legacy lives on in a generation of new leaders that includes Tennessee State Representative Justin J. Pearson, one of two African-American legislators briefly expelled from State House over protesting gun violence on the House floor last year. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on January 11th, Representative Pearson talks passionately about how Dr. King's work is far from over. It is great to see you again. So speaking of Dr. King, before we start talking about Dr. King and his legacy, as we have heard um, in the the intro um, clips of of you speaking, public speaking, um, your speaking style has been compared to to Dr. King's. How does that make you feel? Uh, It's extremely humbling. Uh, Dr. King uh, was obviously one of the greatest orators in the United States of America, one of the greatest orators of the 20th century. And I give a lot of credit uh, to the Black Church. Uh, As I read somewhere, the Black Church uh, loved me and I I loved her back. And I'm the son of a preacher and the son of a teacher. And so I have uh, been able to practice the skill and people have entrusted me uh, with uh, sermons and have entrusted me with public speaking opportunities. Uh, but it is really the same God that Dr. King believed in, a God of justice, a God of love, a God of truth, a God who could break the shackles of white supremacy and break the shackles of oppression. It's the same God that I speak about and that I believe in and the democracy that Dr. King and Fannie Lou Hamer and so many others were fighting for to make real his promises is the same democracy that today in Tennessee and in the United States of America, we are fighting to make real his promises. Well, I was going to ask about the black church later on in the conversation. Well, let's let's talk about it now, um, because as you just mentioned, you are the son of a preacher. You um, you preach yourself on Sundays in church. Mm-hmm. And as you know, and folks watching know Dr. King and other civil rights icons like the late Congressman John Lewis rooted their their fight for justice, for for equity and justice in their Christian identity. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, how has the role of the church, of the black church um, evolved since the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s? You know, I mean, the, the black church and the, the ethos of it, the, 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 the roots of it come from uh, our time in bondage, enslaved in the United States of America, right? It, it, it was, uh, as Baldwin often talks about, you know, people did not expect that uh, African, people of African diaspora would, 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 would take Christianity and turn it into something of liberation rather than of oppression. Because for a very long time, you had white overseers and white plantation owners who would use the Bible as a tool to oppress those whom they enslaved and human trafficked. And then you had black folks who read and listened to those same stories and said, there, there's a different narrative here. 
that in fact, this is a God of justice. Jesus is, is a representation of love. And God, as Dr. James Cone said, is on the side of the oppressed. And so the God the, the, and, and the Christianity that was formed even there, right, in, in the places of the most cruel and inhumane oppression that has happened in the United States of America, Black folk have been able to find strength, to find power in a faith that was rooted in the breaking of chains, in a God that would not leave the people in Egypt in bondage forever, in a God that does not leave those who are sick and those who are, have infirmities in that position. But instead, uh, in Matthew 25, it reads uh, that those who will enter the kingdom of heaven are the ones who fed the hungry those who healed the sick, those who broke the shackles off of the prisoners. And so that faith that was forged in the fire of America's white supremacy and its terrorism has continued to propel me forward, has continued to propel our family forward, has continued to propel our culture forward. And in the 1960s, it was so vitally important when you're being told how you know you have to go into these places of business and not these places. You have white and colored signs. You can't go uh, on, on these streets at different times of the night. You can't go in these counties because uh, uh, it's after sundown. When you're living in the type of environment where lynching is is legal, lies right. The, the killing of Emmett Till is happening. Only God, right? Only a faith that tells you that you are somebody and that you are beloved can help you to persevere through that. And now where the hate of the lynching tree has dissipated into the institutions across this country, into Congress with the, with the new speakers of the House, into this uh, General Assembly with the racism and white supremacy proliferating through its walls and into the papers of its legislation. It is only going to be through a faith that is centered and that is rooted and that is grounded in a God that gets us through and beyond oppression into thriving, that we are going to be able to be made whole and to make this nation whole into what it can be. And so the Black church has taught me that, and I'm, I'm really grateful uh, for all of the lessons, but truly the lesson that God is on the side of the oppressed and that God does not end the story with oppression, that there is always a promise of resurrection to persecuted people. You know, Representative Pearson, over the years, much has been written and said about the ways Dr. King's legacy has been whitewashed, stripped uh, mm -hmm. of its true meaning. How should we be remembering Dr. King's uh, message and legacy in 2024? Mm -hmm. uh, we must remember that Dr. King uh, gave his all for the belief in democracy, for the belief in the value of every person, and that it came at the cost of his own life, speaking about love, speaking about truth, speaking about hope and possibility cost him his life. And the whitewashing that has happened that has tried to neuter the legacy of Dr. King and many in the civil rights movement to say, he only cared uh, about you know that one speech, I have a dream, he only cares about uh, the content of your character, right? Not the color of your skin. And I see white supremacists who retweet that and, and say that, and we'll be saying it in just a few days as a way to say, Dr. King didn't care anything about color. Dr. King didn't really care anything about race. He just wanted people to, to care about the content uh, of others' characters. And they, they failed to remember that this black man was killed by a white supremacist in Memphis, Tennessee, because what he was advocating against was racism. What he was advocating against was the caste system of America that tells its, its, its citizens of color that they do not belong. What he was advocating against was the value of human dignity. And if 
it wasn't controversial, then why was it that at that point in his life when he was assassinated, very few people were actually supportive of the movement? What I believe we have a responsibility to do in this moment and this time as we remember the legacy of Dr. King is to realize that he was beaten, realize that he was incarcerated many times, realize that he was called out of his name, realize that he sacrificed so much and, and, and Mrs. Coretta Scott King sacrificed so much in order for America to be his best self by talking about love and hope and what was possible. And that got him killed. It didn't get him celebrated. And so now. We have this day where people get time off, but they want to only remember one speech, but they don't want to remember the speech that he gave only one year before he was assassinated on April 4th, uh, 1967. He was assassinated on April 4th, 1968, but that, that in 67, in, in he gave a speech about the three evils of America, about racism being an evil, about capitalism and its exploitation being an evil, about militarism being an evil, that we can spend more money on war than we can eradicating poverty. And when Dr. King started to talk about economic justice and the need for people to have the resources to have housing and to have food and to make sure that they were treated as citizens and had dignity, once he started talking about the changing of the systems and a love ethic that was strong enough to break down those barriers and those walls, those in positions of power stopped listening. And those who marched with him before, when he just wanted uh, to, to have integration, when he wanted to make sure that people could sit wherever they wanted to in buses and go to establishments without white and colored signs, people were okay with giving out those, those pieces of symbolism. But when it came time for true economic and social transformation of the country, he lost a whole lot of support. And where we must be in this moment and in this movement for, for justice rooted in love, we must advocate for the creation of a movement, the propulsion of this movement of justice that lifts up everybody, particularly the poor and the disenfranchised. We have to, in this moment, in this time, as we remember Dr. King, we have to remember that we have to fight to change the systems that are oppressing 140 million poor and low wealth people. We have to change the system of white supremacy. We have to change the system of white patriarchy that is killing us. That's what we have to remember as we remember the legacy of Dr. King, not just how great of an orator he was, but listen to the words that he was speaking right before he was assassinated in Memphis. He was talking about an economic boycott of popular brands now like Coca-Cola. He was talking about a transformation and a reformation of our society and the way that it is structured so that we will no longer have a class of people who are being pushed and relegated to the bottom, but rather that we have the investment in everybody's full potential and not just those at the top and not just those who are white of skin. You know, and to, to, to your point, I mean, people know the March on Washington. What they don't know is that the full title was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom jobs and free uh, to the, you know, the economic message. Let me get your reaction to something. I'm just wondering um, how you would apply Dr. Uh, Dr. King's message of nonviolence to today's political realities, you know, having a movement, as you say, rooted in love. And I ask that question because um, Anthea Butler, uh, um, Dr. Anthea Butler, professor at the University of Pennsylvania, who I'm sure you know, uh, you know who she is. Let me read this quote to you um, from the, she said to the Washington Post, quote, when you say we shall overcome, this is not a generation now who will let you beat them and beat them in streets with hoses and dogs. They will fight back. That image is a passive image. No one likes that. It doesn't feel like it works because look where we are. Love your reaction to that. 
Yeah, I have great respect for Dr. Butler and I have great respect for uh, anyone who is interested in helping to liberate those who are oppressed. The reality is Dr. King even said once that a riot is the voice of the unheard. When you do not listen to people, when you ignore them, when you pass laws that, that, that separate them from the rest of society, when you discriminate against people because of their race, when you discriminate against folks because of their class, when you expel duly elected members from the state house, when you weaponize police officers to be uh, uh, weapons of the state to oppress and to silence folks when they are peacefully protesting for the, the, the right uh, for the right to protest against police brutality. When those actions are being taken by those in power, as we saw under an ex-president in Lafayette Square and at, after George Floyd's lynching, and as we saw uh, even in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, after Tyree Nichols's lynching, when, when people are being oppressed consistently, there comes a moment where things can and, and sometimes have in the past boiled over. And what, what I, I would only take issue with Dr. Butler is that those images of black folks being bitten by dogs, uh, those images of black folks marching on Bloody Sunday across the Edmunds Pettus Bridge, including the great honorable John Lewis, who were beaten by those on horses and on horseback, these white supremacists who were committing violence against them, those children who marched in Birmingham, who were, who were singing, even if my mama and daddy can't go, I'm still going. I do not believe that that was an act of, of, of just pacifism. I believe that there is some moral courage that it takes to be willing to risk your body and risk your personhood for people who you will never meet. They, they never knew our names, but they knew that we would be inheriting this country. And so they gave what they could, the best of their service. And, and nonviolent resistance is how they contributed to the movement. And the question for us is, can we get tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people to resist to the oppression? Can we get children to go out and to march against the, the, their deaths in, in schools by fighting against gun, gun violence. Can Dr. Butler and I team up to get hundreds of thousands of people to come to Washington to demand that Congress pass the George Floyd and Policing Act? Can we mobilize and organize and activate people in the way that our ancestors did in defense of our democracy? Because what I do believe about this generation and my generation and Generation Z is that the lessons of our ancestors are the lessons that we need in this present moment because where we are now is not where we would like to be, but it is certainly not where we could be if they didn't put their bodies on the line. It's certainly not where we could be if they did not protest and if they did not advocate in the ways that they did. The reality is that the, the government uh, has a monopoly on violence as they uh, as it's articulated in, in a lot of literature. And so it's not that we're going to outgun the police departments. It's not that we're going to outgun the U.S. military, but it is something quite powerful when you think about the lessons of Jesus, when you think about the lessons of faith, that is there a moral high ground that we can have that cannot be compromised? And when you're talking about the eradication of poverty, when you're talking about a movement for justice rooted in love, the reality is, can we outlove them and can we outorganize them and can we outvote them and can we outmarch them and can we do more than we ever have done before to change these systems? And the reality is the violence that is enacted upon black bodies is wrong and is immoral. And I am never going to okay or say that Bull Connor or the people in positions of power now were ever right. What they did was immoral and the violence they enacted upon black bodies, it resonates to us today. And the reality of this moment is, even if they are not swinging with billy clubs, today they swing gavels in the Tennessee General Assembly. So what will we do about that? Will we elect more leaders? 
who are black and who are progressive into positions to stop the proliferation of, of, of bills and of legislation that's reducing us to second-class citizenship. 20% of black people in the state of Tennessee cannot vote. How will we fight back then? We have now education uh, on the chopping block, schools banning books all across this country, schools banning Toni Morrison, uh, Tony Morrison's beloved, schools banning LGBTQIA office. How will we fight back? We need the resistance and the persistence uh, that our ancestors showed us from cotton fields to the civil rights movement to this present day in order for us to resist by mobilizing, organizing, and activating. And so I understand Dr. Bowler's position, right? The violence and, and, and white folks just attacking people physically is not something that, that, that we will be willing to accept and no one should be willing to accept. And we must realize that Though they have a monopoly on power and they can use it and have wielded it when we have peacefully protested in that way, we must be deeply concerned, maybe even more so, about the way that the institutions are being degraded in this country and how our well, democracy is dying. You know, Representative Pearson, um, let's keep talking about um, the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that erupted after the murder of George Floyd. Uh, at the end of May in 2020, there seemed to be a lot of momentum behind the Black Lives Matter movement. You saw all sorts of changes in the workplace, um, um, you know, from you know big focus on DEI to changes in in um, and talking more about diversity in all aspects mm -hmm. uh, of American society, and lots of people out there on the streets protesting people marveling at the fact that it wasn't just black folks out there on the streets, it right. was America on the streets, all colors and hues. And yet, mm -hmm. it feels like, like we're backsliding. I would mm -hmm. love to know where your opinion on where you think the, the that movement is right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The reality is black lives always matter. And I believe that the movement out to highlight and, and, and really showed this country the disparity and the experiences of black people who are dying at the hands of police brutality more than white folks, the people who are suffering under the weight of, uh, of incarceration. Over 2 million people are incarcerated in this country, disproportionately black folks. The reality that the majority of people dying on death row are black Americans, despite us only being 13% of the population. I believe the Black Lives Matter movement has shown this country a reflection of itself. Uh, and in that moment in 2020, I do believe it galvanized people in a way that I have never seen before, and that many people have never seen before across the spectrum, which is really powerful and really great. But the reality is a movement has to have momentum to continue to propel itself forward. And what we are seeing and what we have seen even during then is a, a white lash. Uh, when Reconstruction happened after the Civil War, there was a, a decade of Reconstruction, people getting married, educational facilities uh, uh, like Howard Universities and others coming uh, about. And then you get a white lash where the people who care more about the status quo than about justice, they do everything they can to reduce those rights. And we see this after 1960s, you get all of these laws passed and then you get the Supreme Court say, you know, you can integrate schools, you know, as slow as you want to. And southern states decide to do that. You get this in 2013, uh, where the where the Supreme Court in Shelby County v. Holder says the Civil the the Voting Rights Act is losing its power. These southern states no longer have to abide by federal decree. And so, what do they do? Immediately, states started to pass laws 
that made it more difficult for black people to be able to engage. We have the George Floyd uh, moment, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. We see progress, corporations starting to pay more attention to DEI. We see cities uh, passing laws that help to prevent uh, the tragedy that occurred with, with Mr. George Floyd and his lynching. And then we get a white last state uh, senators and state representatives and governors start to pass laws that prevent localities from being able to do things like have civilian law enforcement review boards like in Tennessee. We see uh, races Ron DeSantis down there, the governor of Florida, having an entire campaign launched on anti-wokeness. Like this, this white lash is what we get. But this is a part of America's history. This is, is who we are. And the reality is we have to remain persistent. We have to remain focused. We have to remain committed. That we, we being those who care about justice, those who care about democracy, cannot waver in our commitment and our belief and in our vision for a better country that is more equitable and that is more just for everybody. But the reality is, we're always going to face pushback. Right. We're going to face push. We're going to face pushback. And this is a good segue in the about five minutes that we have left to talk about um, just real world politics. We're coming into a 2024 presidential election. There are a lot of people who are concerned that African-Americans, particularly young African-Americans, aren't going to vote because of disappointment over the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act going nowhere or uh, um, uh, nothing happening, nothing happening on voting rights. Uh, Congressman James, James Clyburn of South Carolina has said that he's, quote, very concerned about black mm -hmm. voters showing up in, in the election. Mm -hmm. And I say all that to bring up this question from Bonnie Miller uh, from Delaware, who asks, how can we engage young people in the political process? You were elected when you were 28. What's your advice to Bonnie Miller? Yeah, Bonnie, that's a great question. Uh, the best thing we can do is get proximate. Uh, there's no way uh, to encourage anybody to vote if you're not talking to them, if you're not reaching out to them, if you're not learning about the issues that matter to them, whether that be the environment and climate justice, which is something that matters to a significant amount of people, ending the gun violence epidemic, increasing economic opportunities and reducing poverty, dealing with student loans, a lot of people's lives being put on hold due to the weight of student loans for going to get an education to better themselves, to better their communities. And so I believe to engage young people, you have to go to where young people are. Uh, for like social media that can be on TikTok, which we're launching and, and trying to do work on, all the way to going to the high schools and the colleges to make a case for our democracy, to make a case for the issues that they are saying matter. Because the reality is this is a very pivotal election. Again, uh, it, it will likely be a rematch between President Biden uh, and, and Vice President Harris against uh, the ex-president. And so we are going to need young people and Black people in particular, who have been stalwarts of democracy uh, since its founding, uh, to show up and to participate actively. But the only way young people are going to show up is if we go to young people, ask what they want, support them in running for office, support them in the policies that they're looking to change, and, and really engage them in this process. Because the, as, as one person said, we're borrowing uh, uh, the present from the future. And we really have to invest in our future generations and, and younger people's issues if we're going to have to uh, win not only the election, but help to preserve our democracy into, into the future. Mm -hmm. Representative Pearson, what do you say to young people who say, you know, President Biden, uh, he's too old? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've heard that, that comment before. Uh, the reality is President Biden and the ex-president are roughly the same age. Uh, the, the question is not about age. The question is about, do you want to live in a country 
uh, where our values and our beliefs are more possible? Do you want to live in a country where we can actually create positive change on the issues that matter to us? That will be much more possible under a Biden-Harris administration than with the ex-president, who is an avowed white supremacist, who said after uh, uh, who said in Charlottesville that there were good people on both sides, while folks were chanting "Jews will not replace us," and while they were uh, uh, yelling vitriolic things to black folks and to queer folks. It's it, the, the 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 opportunity for us to preserve our country, or we're going to have a, a person who has already admitted that they want to destroy our democracy and be a dictator on day one. Um. <laughs> that <laughs> you caught you caught me off guard um, um, with your answer because uh, excellent uh, answer. I want to um, close this conversation by playing Dr. King in what would be uh, his last speech um, alive. Let's listen to this, and then I'm going to ask you for a quick reaction on the other side. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. That oration always gives me chills, not just because it was the last thing he said, but just the vision that he presented in the minute that we have left. Uh, Representative Pearson, your thoughts. Um, I have great respect uh, and thanksgiving to Dr. King, to his entire family, and to the movement uh, that he came to Memphis for, the sanitation worker strike. And he said something a few days before uh, he was assassinated. He said, the movement lives or dies in Memphis. The movement for justice lives and dies in the places where we choose to be proximate to the people who the society scoffs at, who they ignore, who they devalue. And Dr. King uh, said that he would not get to the promised land, but the story uh, that he is speaking about, uh, there are some people who do make it. Joshua leads his people into the promised land. And I believe that we all are beneficiaries of the vision of Dr. King, the vision of Fannie Lou Hamer and so many others. And we have a responsibility to march into the promised land, a land where people are considered whole people, no matter their identities, no matter their race, no matter their class. We have to walk into a promised land where kids don't go to sleep hungry at night. We have to walk into a promised land where books aren't being banned, but people are being lifted up. We have to walk into a promised land where people are not poor and low income because those at the top are capitalistically exploiting people. We have to walk into a promised land where racism is not the governing principle for our institutions. We have to walk into a promised land that is more just, but it's gonna require our God hands. It's gonna require our God feet. It's gonna require our God hearts. It's gonna require us showing up and defending and fighting for what we believe in because the best days for this country, the best days for America are still ahead. And I'm glad to be marching alongside so many millions of people across this country who believe in that too.
you know, when you and I met, it was at the uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner back in April, and and you were there um, with Oceana, who you informed me then y'all were you you had just gotten engaged, I think. Mm -hmm. So y'all got married yet? We haven't got married yet. It's Oceana Argillium. She's going to law school, Jonathan. Uh, uh, she's going to law school. She got a full ride scholarship. Uh, we're not married yet, but probably next spring we're going to do that. But I'm really, uh, it was so great to see you there. Uh, she says hi as well. Uh, uh, <laughs> but we're not married yet. But give us, give us okay. you know, about it one more year and it's going to happen. And you're invited. Oh, great, great. And I didn't mean to put any pressure on you in terms of get, getting married. I just want, you know, just trying to, just trying to keep current. Tennessee State Representative Justin J. Pearson, thank you very much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Let's keep going. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.